I speak to you this morning in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is quite the gospel story. <laughs> I mean, it's about a naked guy who lived in the cemetery. Had demons, a bunch of them. Um, the demons in the man talked to Jesus and asked to be cast into a herd of pigs. Um, Jesus gave them permission to go into the pigs. They go into the pigs. The pigs had a moment, ran down a steep hill and leapt into a lake and drowned. Crazy story. Um, the closest I got to uh, exegeting this text was to compare the naked man running through the cemetery full of demons to toddlers or preteens. But I decided not to go there. So I want to focus on the Old Testament reading this morning from the, from the lectionary. Uh, you're on your own with that gospel text. First Kings is the text that I actually wanted to focus on. They really do tie together, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to show you where, where later. This is the king by the name of Ahab, wasn't a good guy, and his wife Jezebel, who wasn't a good gal, weren't godly, they uh, were not for the God of Israel. Ahab told Jezebel that Elijah, all that Elijah had done, you remember he had just had a moment where he called down fire and had killed all of the false prophets of Baal, how he had killed the prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which uh, belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a solitary broom tree and he asked that he might die. Interesting. Sometimes when you have the greatest moments of your life, there's this other side that isn't so wonderful. It is enough, he says now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank and then he went the strength, uh, in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. It's the original power bar or something. To Horeb, the Mount of God, which is quite a hike, 40 days and 40 nights. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. 
But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the story goes on. God was in the sheer silence. Elijah expected God to be in that tornadic wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. But God ended up being in this place that's called sheer silence. I used to think if God were really with us, that he would be doing something demonstrative all the time. You know, a deep feeling, uh, a healing, a discernible miracle of some sort. That if something was of God, it would have to be a thing like a rushing wind or a shaking like an earthquake or some fiery attention-grabbing thing over the years. I've come to believe that though sometimes God is demonstrative and we welcome that. God also moves in silence. Maybe God mostly moves in silence. In places where God says or seems to be saying nothing. This is the place of hiding. As a Pentecostal kid, I thought God wanted to speak all the time, but that we just weren't open and all of my spirituality was to get open, to, uh, to hear the now voice of God and to experience God's power. And I believed that, that there was a spout where the glory came out <laughs> and that I had to keep fighting to find the spout. To not find it, was to live outside the will of God. And so it was almost a constant stress to press in, to pray longer, to sing louder, to get to the altar and cry enough for the fire to come, for the tornadic wind, the rushing wind to come, for my life to be shaken to its core. And I remember after being a pastor some years, I was just reading casually through the New Testament. I used to read through the Bible. I still do, but I used to read through it in the one-year Bible and just read it devotionally. And one particular day, I'm reading through Luke 24, and I'm, you know, I'm reading and not trying to study and just getting through the text, right? And as I'm reading through the text, I'm reading through Luke 24, and I got to this part. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the day... Uh, of resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked, they discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And watch this. This was the phrase. But they were kept from recognizing him. Intentionally, Jesus comes up. It's Jesus. But his disciples who knew him, they were kept from recognizing him. And I remember reading that, and as I read it, 
I felt this kind of voice. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I don't hear voices, but it was a sense of a voice, this sense of a question, and I really believe it was the Holy Spirit. And the, 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 the kind of sense of the voice said, I do that to you all the time. I prevent you from recognizing me. And my first impulse was, get behind me, Satan. Because there was no conceptual space in my mind that God did not want to be on parade. I didn't know that God was present in the silence. I didn't know that God loves to hide in our lives. Isaiah, I didn't know Isaiah 45, 15. This text, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. God loves to hide. This fact turns out to be the central concept of faith. You remember in Hebrews, when it talks about faith, Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe, one, that he exists or that he is or that he's there, and number two, that he rewards people who seek him, earnestly seek him. Why do they seek him? Because they believe that he's there. See, one, I mean, really our lack of seeking God, I don't think is about sin in our lives. I think it's that we don't really believe he's actually with us. And since we don't really believe he's with us, why would we seek him within our lives? I mean, where's the evidence that he's with us? As a kid, I'd, I'd hear pastors rattle off all kinds of things that I would go, oh my gosh, that stuff's never happened to me. They would talk about healings that would happen, financial miracles that would happen, these opportunities that were crazy that would happen. And then I'd look at me <laughs> and I had that not much going on going on. <laughs> but I didn't know that God was the God of not much going on. I just thought God was the God of a bunch going on. And when a bunch wasn't going on, I, I thought I was really, you know, not on God's radar screen, except when I was naughty. But what if that's a lie? What if God rests in our lives even though it seems like he's resting in sheer Silence, no rushing wind, no shaking of the soul, no fire. Most of the universe, you know, when you look at it, is just empty space. Most of it is. You look at the planets, and you look at the suns, and you look at the meteors, and you look at everything that is. It's, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, but most of what's out there is nothing. It's emptiness. And, and when you look at your bodies or, your, or physical things, if you know the science behind it, most of it is nothing. This seems solid, but it isn't. It's just a bunch of atoms and electrons and space. The reason we don't go through it is because of resistances of forces that are not seen. It's not because it's solid. Most of everything in the universe is nothing. Silent space. What if God is there too? 
in the silent space, in the emptiness? What if in the deepest, darkest emptiness is the crucified one? God may be the God of light and the God of clarity, but he's also the God of dark and unclear places. Referring to the, to the giving of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, God's big ten, top ten. Moses said to the Jews, quote, this is Deuteronomy 5, these are the commandments of the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. And then he wrote them down on two stone tablets and gave it to them, or gave them to me. This talking about God to Moses, gave it to him. There is deep darkness in God as well as fire. Places where knowing is limited or is absent. Places where there is no clarity about what to do or where to go. Yet God is right there. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, I, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. He's saying that to God. God's not thrown by darkness or silence or quiet or absence. Think of those times in your life when you were disrupted or confused or disoriented, the temptation is to think God is not there. Because if he were, you wouldn't be in those spaces. But what if there is no place where God is not? I want to talk about a couple of places that I think God is, places really that are dreadful to we Americans. Sometimes I think we make, we Americanize God, right? We Americans, and I love this, we're positivists. Uh, we're always moving to the prize and there's to the win. And you know, there's, there, there's a piece, part of that Christian theology agrees with. You know, you look at Romans 8, it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So there's, there really is a place where God brings victory and clarity and hope, strength. There's always hope, but strength and wins. But don't confuse ultimate outcomes where God crosses every T and dots every I with process where things are unclear and not finished yet. Just a few verses later where it says, God works all things together for good. God said, or the scripture says, just a couple of verses later, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? What's he saying? If you have all that going on, that doesn't mean God's love separated from you. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Not many of us claim that text. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, we jump on that. But, but listen, we may see victory eventually, but that is only because we faced battles. The only persons who claim to have no battles, to only live in perpetual peace, are falsely spiritual Pollyannish Christians. And Crazy people. (laughs) 
Be very leery. Hear me. Hear me. Be very leery of people who claim to be perpetually satisfied and seem to have all the answer. Be leery. All sane people have battles. We are aware of problems. And the more we realize the complexity of those battles and the problems, the more compassionate and the more humble and the more engaged we become in the world. This is what makes us more human. The Bible actually tells us to expect battles and trials as part of the human experience. James writes, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The way that we become mature and complete is the very fact that we face these moments none of us want to face and would rather avoid. So there's two kinds of battles I want to reference here. The first one is the hard battles. The second one, or ordinary battles, which I think may be harder than the hard battles. So let's talk about hard battles first. These are the times when you recognize that dream isn't going to happen. This isn't. The loss of strength, the loss of health, heartache, abandonment, these dark places that rip at us. These are the places when we seem to resonate with the cry of the psalmist, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? This is a famous lament in the Psalms of Israel. It was actually the one that Jesus cried as he was dying on the cross. My God, my God, why? And then there's Job. When Job was looking at the trials and the tragedies that he faced, the loss of his children. I mean, in the end, God gives him more children. But just because God gives you more children doesn't mean you miss the ones you used to have. Don't miss the ones you used to have. And Job cries out, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my soul. These are real places in faithful people. Theologians call this lament. It was considered an appropriate form of prayer and worship. But here's the claim of the sacred text. Even in the worst of the worst, the hardest of the hard, God is there. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It's so counterintuitive because it seems like if he was really with me, I wouldn't be in that particular valley. And yet there I am in the valley of the shadow of death, but he is with me and his, his rod and his staff, they comfort me and he prepares a table for me right in the presence of my enemies. He doesn't get rid of them first. I mean, in the presence of the enemies, he still is preparing a table. So right in the midst of it, he's calling us to something. You anoint my head with oil, which means we belong. 
to him. My cup overflows. Surely, ultimately, goodness and love will follow me when the story's finished all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, God is always with you even in the bad. Here's another one, Psalm 46, one of my favorites. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help. Where? In trouble. He's an ever-present help in trouble. Just because you're in trouble doesn't mean he's not ever-present. Therefore, even when I'm in trouble, I will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea and the water comes down like, what is going on? <laughs> Roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her. God will help her. I've been in the ER with a couple when the doctors walk in and they look at the parents and they say, your daughter is gone. I've been there. I watched the parents fall to the ground, fall to the ground, not crying, wailing. There's a difference. Where is God then? Right there. I've sat with those who have had their spouses quit on them. I've been there when people have lost what they thought they would never lose. And though it doesn't feel like God isn't in those spaces, it feels like God is everywhere but there. God is, not, is there, not causing the pain, but being in the pain, suffering with us. I actually think God might be more in those places, the places of anguish and pain, than in the places of miracle. Here's why I say that. Here's an interesting passage, Matthew 25. This is Jesus talking about the end of judgment. We're talking about who is brought in to his kingdom and his glory and those who aren't. And he's talking to those who are. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in his heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed in my, by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the righteous one answered, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? What? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? I mean, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king said in reply, I tell you the truth. 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. See, think of this. People who are hungry and without food, thirsty without clean water, alienated and lonely, a total stranger, someone needing clothes, destitute, naked, sick or in prison. Where is God for them? Jesus claims to be there with the hungry, with the thirsty, with the stranger, with the naked, with the sick, with the imprisoned. So much so that he claims he is them. This tells me God is present in the silence. God is present in the absence. God is present in the darkness. God is present in the doubt and the uncertainty. The crucified one inhabits those places. If I were God, I I think honestly, I would be most concerned about kings and presidents and celebrities, and the gifted, and the rich. Not the disadvantaged. Not the ones we only think of in mass, and not by name. Even Jesus, in our gospel story, asks the demons, what is your name? They don't know how to respond to that. We're just legion. We're just a mass of stuff. What if God knows everyone by name? You know, there are billions of faces on the earth and we know scientifically no two faces are the same. What if God intends that? because they each one matter. The ones God's concerned with, the ones God's presence is with, are those ones that many don't even know their name. Okay, then there's the battle of the dreaded ordinary. I gotta hurry. One fellow said it this way, one, the thing about life is that it is so daily. The truth is life is jammed with flat out boredom. Times when life is not very interesting, spaces where things are not what you would hope. Life is full of that stuff. But is God there? In the ordinary, in the daily, in the boring, is God there? I think we should be okay with less than brilliant and amazing. There is beauty in the dim stars too. Here's a flower that didn't get best of show. Here's a dog that didn't get best of show. There's something oddly cute about that horrific creature. People of faith learn to find the beauty in the not so. 
learn to find the fingerprints of God in the seeming ordinary of life. For example, in your career, um, it's okay to be a butcher or baker or candlestick maker. I mean, when I started out I, in, in working, I worked in three hospitals as an orderly and just helping people, wiping bottoms, giving showers. And some of those moments, because I did them with gusto from my heart, are some of the places God framed my life for what I do now. I was a photographer for years, but my way through college as a wedding photographer, portrait photographer. I loved those jobs. I think everything in us that longs to be rich and famous and important is only our ego. And really, it's not really living. I mean, it's okay to be really gifted and talented and famous and all that, but the only reason it would be okay is that it doesn't touch you. Uh, you can't sell your soul for what you do. You remember Jesus, Matthew 16, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit the soul? In general, we're, we're as a culture, we're this over-the-top everything culture. Watch out for always trying to overreach, to always trying to be the top of everything, to always being the best of show. Pick a career that may not be your passion but yet has a decent wage attached to it. I mean, people who tell you to follow your passion usually are already rich. <laughs> or at least established. Life is less about money and less about that than it is about freedom. I mean, if you're willing to follow your passion and you only can scratch out this low income that you can't live on, it will end up bringing resentment in you as you age. And then when you have kids and get a mortgage, I mean, pursuing your passion may suffocate the joy you get from working in your passion. So what you do, <coughs> excuse me, get a job that you simply like and that pays a decent income and then make sure you live below your means and save a chunk of your income. Eventually, if you learn to do this, it'll offer a level of financial flexibility where you'll be able to pursue your passion as a hobby or just for pure pleasure. Now, no, forgive me. I know this is so anti-American. I'm just trying to pastor you <laughs> in your faith. Don't expect too much from your faith. There's an old cart, it's an old kind of cartoon, but old uh, um, ad campaign for Almond Joy and Mounds. And Almond Joy and Mounds are basically the same candy bar. Quite scrumptious, actually. Take it from a diabetic. <laughs> but the difference is, is Almond Joy has nuts. Peter Pound Mounds don't. And so they would have this ad campaign years ago that would go, the little song they were saying is, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Right? <laughs> well, I'm bringing that up only to say, sometimes you feel like a saint, sometimes you don't. Stop with the incessantly trying to have revival. To have spiritual highs all the time, the clear voice of God all the time. If you want that too much, you'll start just making it up. 
Revival experiences are not perpetually sustainable. They don't last. They cannot last. John Wesley, who's the king of revivalism, said as much, claimed they cannot last. The back and forth of human nature like that's reflective in the narrative of books like Judges is, is in us. They show that there's this serpentine openness to and then resistance to God within the human experience. <laughs> Our hearts are prone to wander. Therefore, not all time is revival time. Certainly, there are times, according to the sacred text, where there are seasons of refreshing, and we long for that. It's just not a constant one. Spiritual winters come where there's no evidence of revival, and, and evidently, it's part of God's plan for our spiritual development. Because as winter prepares the earth for spring, we need spiritual winters, revival absence, to prepare us, to prune us, to help us open up in new ways to God for new growth. Revival moments should be sought after and can be experienced again and again, but they cannot be the sole characteristic of one's faith experience. Faith cannot be lived in constant wonderment and ecstasy. Just like a lifelong, loving, enduring marriage needs more than wonderment and ecstasy, so does a lifelong, loving, enduring faith. This does not mean revivals can't carry an ongoing influence. They certainly can. But they can only carry that as they're remembered. A.R. Amen speaks of the inability of human beings to produce this, these metaphysical experiences over and over again, except to access them from what has happened in the past through memory. He writes, quote, I'm a mystic, but by memory only. For an instant, about 10 years ago, I felt the perspective from space to earth. I was there. And then he goes on to say, but you can't hold on to that. It doesn't happen every day. The great Jewish theologian, Abraham Joshua Herschel, who was a mystic, defined faith as primary faithfulness to a time when we had faith. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, that's like you should slap somebody over that. That's so good. Faith is, is basically faithfulness to a time when you had faith. <laughs> he claimed that we remember mystical moments of heightened awareness in our lives, those, those, those clearings with consciousness in which faith is self-evident and God is too obvious and omnipresent to even need a name. And we try to remain true to those moments. It's a, it's a kind of tenuous, tenacious discipline of memory and hope. That's faith. <laughs> Don't let your Pentecostal or charismatic culture, if you come from that, control your daily faith culture. That culture is not faith. It's just culture. And then in your marriage or friendships. Be okay with less than an amazing knock your socks off never ending honeymoon marriage. Gil and I have married 42 years. Um, we speak romantically about our marriage. She's the only one for me. I love her down to the marrow of my bones, but we both know we suck a little at marriage. Sometimes either one of us are too selfish. She actually has opinions that I did not give her. <laughs> which irks me to no end. I'm an educated man. 
We used, we used to fight until we were mad as hornets. Now we fight because then our fights are so familiar and so repetitive, you know, they're the same kind of around the mulberry bush thing, <laughs> that we will fight until we notice the patterns of what we usually fight and then we start laughing. <laughs> Such a healthier place. If your expectations are too high for marriage, you will have a number of them. Just look at the lives of the rich and famous. Okay, I really do need to stop. One last thing. How should you do battle? Whether it's hard, whether it's ordinary, the answer is simple. Keep showing up. When you face hard places, keep showing up in prayer. Keep asking and seeking and knocking, and Jesus said it will answer and the, the door will be open for you, you'll find. Keep, Jesus said, he used the example of the unjust judge who you keep asking and the response comes. Keep showing up in prayer when you're in hard times. Show up and run at the pain that you see, like the pain of those who are disadvantaged or sick or poor. Just show up, the Good Samaritan story. Matthew 25, just show up and be a part, relieve. There's people that I've talked to that when they find out they have cancer, they'll say to somebody, I've got cancer. Do you know what they say? Is that people stop touching them or getting near them. We should move toward people that are in pain or having heartache. You're not gonna catch a divorce from somebody that's going through one. Lean into them, touch their arm, pray with them, move toward them, show up. And then when you pray for people that are sick, don't just pray a revival thing you saw at some altar somewhere, now be healed. What you ought to say is, God, you're here with them in the suffering and, and you're here with them in the healing. We don't know where this is, but we thank you, you're working in this. We're trusting you for good reports to come. Just be gentle and sweet and nudging. Don't pray a prayer that if they don't have, if they continue to decline, they can't come back to you because they're embarrassed. Listen, this ought to be the greatest place in the world to get healed and the greatest place in the world to die. No judgment zone. In battles in the ordinary, show up in your faith. Come to church, show up in prayer, participate in the liturgy. When you hear, give thanks to the Lord. With conviction, say it is good to give thanks to the Lord. When you come to the Eucharist, come with openness and expect eternal life. Who cares about feelings? <laughs> Just show up. Show up in your job, show up in your marriage. Keep showing up. The claim of our text this morning is God is everywhere, even in the places where you're sure God is not. Our text said, now, there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer, Silence. God was there. Run after the God 
of sheer silence. God always shows up. Let's do 